it's interesting. And just ask them, hey, go up to the line. We're going to get into a two-point sprint. See which they, which they prefer, and then ask them if they're a right-handed or left-handed shooter. But if you always prefer that left foot forward and you always prefer that right foot forward, what ends up happening is, is you get so comfortable on that side that you actually develop more strength on one of your legs when you shoot out in the sprint. Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joining the line later today by Adam Minner of the Varsity House. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, I want to give you a quick recap of the week that was, what's new in my neck of the woods, and just catch you up to speed. So first off, coming off the long weekend, pretty legit, pretty long and relaxing. Hopefully you can say the same. <laughs> what happened to the days of youth? That's what I uh, asked myself many, many times, um, you know, chores this weekend, got to drive up to Muncie, see my parents' farm, make sure everything was okay up there as they're planning on selling that, uh, smoked a pork shoulder. I mean, honestly, I think the most exciting thing I did was going out on Thursday night before the weekend hit to celebrate Bill Hartman and his 55th birthday. He sang three songs with uh, the, one of the local bands here in town. And man, it was really fun. Not just fun to watch him perform and just know all the hard work and effort that he's put into getting ready for that performance. But man, just seeing the IFAS family out in droves. I bet there were 30 to 40 people uh, that were associated with the gym from clients. I mean, clients that we've had there almost since day one. PT students that flew in from Boise, Idaho, from Las Vegas. I mean, just a really cool and fun experience. So that was probably honestly the highlight. And that was before the weekend even hit. So not a whole lot else to comment on. Did go try and catch one of my boy Jacob Abel's races. If you're unaware, he's a a race car driver that I've been working with for about four months now and was really excited to watch him race here in town because he's been all over. He's been in Austin. He's been in Alabama. He's been in like Tampa, Florida area. So it was really cool. I was excited. It's race weekend. Wanted to go watch him run here. The weather had been kind of sketch, but you know, I took the kids, we piled in the car and it just wasn't meant to be. First off, the weather was freezing. Don't ask me how the weather at the end of May is like 50 degrees at night, but number one, we were frozen. The races start late because the track had been wet We get through all the preliminary races. Jacob and his team are are taking their starting warm-up laps, and then all of a sudden the rain hits again and shut the whole race down. So needless to say, a little bit bummed uh, that we didn't get to watch him, but hopefully we'll get to watch him here live sooner than later because I'm just really excited. It's fun to work with this young man. He's a great kid and just fun to learn about new sports. That's part of the thing that I enjoy about coaching is I'm always not necessarily seeking out, new opportunities, but I'm always excited when new opportunities present themselves to me and I get to learn something about a new athlete and a new sport. So speaking of athletes, uh, basically everyone is back in town or getting into town in the next week or two. So the training hours are definitely cranking up. You know, I love this time of year. I love getting all the athletes back, getting back to work. I think we've got really good programs laid out too. you know, just the the work that I've been doing in my own headspace, the stuff uh, that I've taken from Bill and that I've been using from his work and his model, just really excited because I'm having just some really big breakthroughs with some of these athletes and some people that I felt like maybe in the past I got good results with, I'm already starting to get really great results with in a very short period of time. So really, really excited about where everybody's at and where they're going. 
big baseball presentation this weekend. I don't know if I've talked about it too much here, but Paul Reddick is somebody I don't think I don't even know if we've actually met in real life. We've interacted a ton online and and Paul's got a very big chunk of the uh, real estate when it comes to online baseball training and online baseball education. So I'm going to be giving a talk for his crew this weekend where we can, we're going to be talking about energy system training for pitchers. And I love this topic. It's something that, you know, when I was working with a lot more baseball players back in the day, I felt like we had a really unique approach to programming for them, especially when it came to the conditioning side, because in a lot of cases, when it when you're working with baseball players, conditioning is an afterthought. So it's something that I've always been passionate about, something I've enjoyed talking about in the past. And I'm really excited to put this this presentation together because I feel like I've taken all of these thoughts that were kind of discombobulated or disorganized in my brain, put it into a really seamless format where I'm going to go out there and I'm going to try and pitch the idea of, hey, look, conditioning is a real thing. And you know, it's not these polar opposite ends of the spectrum. It's not just long duration, low intensity stuff. It's not just going out and throwing bullpens and ramping up as, you know, the season gets closer. There's a way that we can condition our athletes for higher levels of success. And we've done it with our athletes over the years. So I'm really excited to share our process with Paul's crew this weekend. So pumped about that. And then last but not least, it is Team Robertson's last week of sports. Kendall has two practices this week, two games this weekend for a tournament. If they win or do well in both, they'll get to play a third kind of championship game. So excited to see what we can pull together here. The girls are really gelling at the right point in time. So really, really excited to see how they do this weekend. And then Cade's got two more baseball games and he's done. So obviously I think I've used the word excited five or six times. Lots of things to be excited about right now. Very just motivated and driven to see what we can accomplish in the coming weeks and months between the athletes, between what we got going on at IFAST, just lots of good things going on. All right, so that's enough for me. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump into this awesome episode with my guy, Adam Minner. It seems like almost every day I talk to a young trainer or coach who was frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if this sounds anything like you, I've got something that I know will help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you, who are serious about the results they get and know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is gonna take the last 20 years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In it, you'll learn how to use the R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. How to create the culture, environment, and relationships with everyone you train so you can get the absolute best results. The exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym, from squatting and deadlifting, to pressing and pulling, and everything in between. And last but not least, I've added an entire section on my assessment process and how to use that to write programs faster and more effectively than ever before. Of course, there's a ton more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the certification is all about. Now, here's the thing. Spots for the certification will open twice per year for a limited time only. 
If you're interested in learning more, my next certification will launch in March 2021. And if you join my free insiders list, you'll be able to save $200 when it opens. To get on the insiders list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, completecoachcertification.com, and then stay tuned for our launch emails coming very soon. Thanks so much for your support, and I hope you'll pick up a copy of the Complete Coach Certification when it launches. Adam Minner is the Director of Training at Varsity House Gym in Orangeburg, New York, and a partner at the Business of Strength. He's also the coach to over 1,000 youth, high school, D1, and NBA athletes. In this show, Adam and I explore the topic of speed development in basketball. We start by discussing his three pillars of speed and how they form the foundation of his speed training philosophy. Next, we talk about how he lays out his training days, including the emphasis and role of each. And last but not least, we talk about how he's using technology to better determine what an athlete's needs are and track their results over time. There's a lot of great info and takeaways in this show, and I know you're going to love it. But enough for me. Let's do this. Adam, man, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to have you on and chat with you. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure, Mike. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, Big fan of the show, and I know you guys do great work. So, you know, I think like most coaches, uh, I played sports, basketball, suffered an injury, classic uh, strength coach story. (laughs) But at that time, I was actually, so this was around college, end of high school, college. Uh, I I was a psychology major. And I actually did my rehab work at DeFranco's training systems. Oh, so nice. DeFranco, yeah. So DeFranco's was right around the block from me. So while we were there, I did my rehab work. Cam Joss is a really, really good friend of mine. Yeah. Um, and so he was there and we just, we just hung out. We got to know each other pretty well. We had a good relationship and uh, I ended up interning and then working there. So I was there for almost three years before he went down to on it and they did okay. their whole partnership. And then Cam obviously, uh, went down as well. So I was there, but I think that's kind of where the turning point was. I was a psychology major, as I mentioned. And I think, you know, I started to see how important of a role that played in training and developing relationships with athletes and building rapport. And you see all these different factors and how they contribute far beyond the X's and O's. And I saw that that was really the defining factor of watching Joe, watching Cam, of what separated them as strength coaches is I think we all have accessibility to the same information. We may interpret it a little bit differently. We're better at teaching it. But I think if you can establish yourself as that individual who builds these relationships with people and and that aspect really enticed me. So that's kind of how I got into the industry. I came here to Varsity House. I interned and they really doubled down on that building relationships, being a community leader. So I had the kind of the training background Then I had this leadership here at VH. And I think the culmination of that is what really propelled me into where I am today. Yeah, no, that's awesome, man. Dude, I just have flashbacks. Whenever I hear the name Joe DeFranco, when he came on the scene back writing for T Nation and just yoked in the tank top, you know, <laughs> just like swelled up, holding on to that barbell. I was like, okay, I like this guy, man. And Joe yeah, and I yeah. hung out a couple of times. He's an awesome dude. So, well, let's, let's go back even a little bit further. You mentioned you were a basketball player, had an injury. Like, how did you get introduced into physical preparation? What was your start there? For sure. I think just learning, like, again, when I, what's funny is I was a basketball player, but when I got to DeFranco's, I didn't know anything about physical preparation. Like I knew you could be a trainer. I knew it was important. And this is, we're talking about dating back to 2012, right? So when I'm there, 
I think I saw that the love of training and I saw how it brought me back and even better as a basketball player working with Cam and Joe. And so that's when I realized, wow, this is a huge component of the game. So I almost had that, like I, I alluded to before, this the psychology component. But that was where I doubled down. I was like, wow, if you can, if you understand that, this part is the delivery. This is the X's and O's. This is the science behind it. So I think it was really in that moment when I was rehabbing myself back where it was like, this is what I want to do. And I eventually switched majors and it kind of propelled from there. I gotcha. I gotcha. And then you kind of gave us a little insight into your career path, but talk to me about your day-to-day now. What do you do at Varsity House? You know, what does an average day look like for Adam Minner? Yeah, for sure. So I have kind of two roles. I'm the director of training and uh, coaching development here. So anything that refers to our training product, our experience, onboarding new clients, developing our coaching staff is something big that we do here. And just ensuring that we deliver world-class service, whether it's to our NBA guys or youth guys or general pop. Uh, And then my other role is I'm a partner in a consulting company called The Business of Strength, where we just help other coaches. And so every day usually starts with waking up, getting some back-end work for The Business of Strength, coming in, training the guys, and then working on ways to develop, you know, our product and our coaches here at BH. That's awesome, man. Okay, well, today what I'd love to focus on are two of my favorite, and I know two of your favorite topics as well, and that's speed development and basketball. Yeah, so, I love it. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to helping your basketball players get faster, how would you describe your philosophy or your big rocks? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think when you look at speed, and obviously we were on the summit together, which was awesome. Yep. I mean, there are so many coaches on there, you know, watched yours just in prep for the pod. <laughs> but so I think that, you know, when I talked about it, sprinting is the key to health and performance. I look at speed holistically. I believe that it encompasses three pillars. Right. So pillar one is speed is health. And I think that's really important. As I talked about in the summit, you know, we uh, speed truly is the key to health and performance from everything from the speed reserve, which we'll talk about gait mechanics, insulin sensitivity, glucose control, improving body composition and even improved cognitive function. You look at development of athletes neuroplasticity and neuromuscular abilities and earlier athletes, because you've seen this, you could have an NBA athlete comes in, he has a great engine, he's very powerful, he's a genetic freak, but that technical ability is that expression of that Mm -hmm. aforementioned power and speed. So really rewiring the nervous system, if you will, developing coordination and all of those things, in my opinion, encompasses health because it talks, we talk about everything from the toe down or toe up. Mm-hmm. Pillar two, though, right? Speed is the contextual. Speed is in sport where getting there first matters a lot. And so we have shown, we collect a lot of data here. We've shown that athletes who have higher levels of max velocity have higher operating speeds in games. So I always use this analogy. You have two athletes. Athlete A squats 500 pounds. Athlete B squats 300 pounds. Well, who's going to be able to rep out 225 more, right? The athlete with the higher ceiling at 500 pounds. However, the same thing works in speed. If I can get an athlete, a basketball player, to attain velocity and hold it before that rate of deceleration, I know that their submax speed in their games is going to be higher than the opposition if that athlete doesn't have the same true max velocity. Hmm. That's number one. And two is just peak power that we measure, that start, the zero to three steps, you know, trying to improve what we call that Pmax. But force, like we said before, is what natural athletes have, but you can develop it in novice athletes. And so by what we talked about as well is that technical expression, building that technical ability is how you get those athletes 
to express that force at top speed. So pillar two, top speed in developing that starting strength. And then lastly, pillar number three, I kind of said in pillar two, is just improving linear speed and acceleration. I think if you can really improve someone's peak output and horizontal force in conjunction with rewiring the nervous system, I think it really helps. And we did actually an internal study here, which is pretty cool, a 52-week study where we shown that athletes who improve their acceleration 10-yard sprint had higher, by improved their lower body strength in a main movement, we picked a pin pull by 8.4%. Over wow. the span of a 52-week period. So it just shows that I think speed is health, speed is contextual, and speed is, is velocity and force. Um, I love Yeah, I didn't want to talk to you all there. No, no, that's, that's awesome, man. So I want to break this down even further. And I'd love to get some insight into how you break down your movement days in basketball. And I'll give you some, some context here because this is a really broad answer. Like I tend to break things down and I think, you know, like linear acceleration, linear deceleration, lateral acceleration, change of direction. And I kind of build from there. But how do you guys go about setting up your programs there? Yeah, for sure. I mean, all of those, those qualities that you just mentioned definitely play a role in speed development. You know, when we train speed here three times a week with varying intensities and objectives, but we break the speed down into three components. So you have the start, mm-hmm. maximal velocity, and we call it situational speed. That's almost the expression of one speed. So it might be change of direction, curvilinear work, so forth. But when I look at a program, we split it up into three days. Day one is about acceleration. So this includes a force velocity profile and seeing where the individual bleeds power. So this is by assessing their net force and their PMAC. So maybe they have really good starting strength, but very poor velocity. So that acceleration drops off quick. Whereas like our quicker athletes, more of our guards, they don't have as much force as our forwards, but they have really good velocity. So we know if we need to get them to their velocity quicker, we need to improve their starting acceleration and power. That's day one. Day two is all about attaining velocity and the technical components. So this is where we're really honing in on that technical work to help them get to that top speed. Like I said, attaining velocity. And over time, we're ramping up the distances. This is where we include some flying sprints. This is where we include all those types of higher velocity-based movements. And then as you said, day three is situational speed. This is where we build in deceleration, lateral acceleration, deceleration. And I like to refer to it as our triplanar variation. So everything kind of needs to work in conjunction with together. But if I was to say day one is linear acceleration, day two is max velocity, day three is deceleration and change of direction. Dude, that's awesome. And that, it actually kind of led into a follow-up question I'd written down because you've mentioned max velocity a couple times and yeah. not a lot of people talk about max velocity in the basketball sure. space. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about like how you assess that um, and I think you alluded to you maybe do some some flying tens, but could you talk a little bit more about that? Because again, a lot of people will tell you, oh, you know, you don't, you never hit max velocity in a basketball game. So I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on that. Yeah, for sure. We've seen it in some of our data, but you can't blanket statement and say by improving true max velocity, there's an inverse relationship to improving acceleration. Right. However, I would argue if you can get an athlete to truly run at top speed they will improve acceleration. Yep. But I think it's a slippery slope because a lot of people don't have that time frame to work with athletes. You know, shameless plug here, but we work with four 13-week blocks. So no matter if you come in, I know I have you for 13 weeks. 
yep. which is pretty cool. So we build that up front because I think it's important to hold somebody accountable instead of a drop in rate or five sessions. It's like, I feel like I'd be doing you a disservice, you know, talking to parents or athletes. It's like, Hey, buy a 10 pack. It's like, there's no commitment on either end on that front. Right. So, so we're very fortunate in that way, but to answer your question, yeah. To get to that max velocity, why I believe it's so important is because of what I alluded to before. I think the nervous system, right? There's no exercise in the world that utilizes almost 100% of your motor units that speed does, but you only get 100% of those motor units at 15 yards or beyond. So when you look at these high performing plays of Odell Beckham catching, you know, this crazy ball, or you look at guys, you hear the term, the game slows down. That's because they have so much frequent exposure to max velocity. So it helps with cognitive processing because in a game, as we've talked about, that's submax speed. I can make decisions quicker by a frequently ex experienced faster paced environment, such as running a 15, 20, 30 meter sprint. There's no basketball player who truly runs that top speed in a game. And we've seen it. They're going a five yard burst, a 10 yard burst, right. and they slow down. So you'd be surprised at what you can see in terms of all these physiological subsets to build by getting an athlete to reach that max velocity. The hardest part though, is building the technical capacity to do so. So it's a lot of technique work, a lot of posture work, a lot of pattern work, a lot of tendon work, just to ensure that we're prepping the athlete to handle those forces at that top speed. I love it. I love it. So one more follow-up question on that yeah, because you know, a lot of us are working in a small space, yep. right? So like iFast is about 90 feet long. So, you know, even in a best basketball court, right, right. So it's like, yeah, we can maybe get a 20 in there if we can open up the back door and have people run out the back. But just logistically, how do you work that into your programs? For sure. So in smaller spaces, this is where you can do a lot of flying fives and a flying tens. Okay. Let's say, just using that example, 94 feet a court, 75 feet is usually about 25 yards. So let's say you were to do a 15-yard, you have 20 yards to work with. You warm your athletes up, you do all your progression, so forth and so on. But the first five to seven yards, you're going to do a build-up. So you're going to tell them, hey, you're going to start along the wall, but you're going to build up, you're going to accelerate five to seven yards. And once you reach that first 10-yard mark, you're going to do a flying five or 10 yard sprint mm. and, and that will coast out to the remaining distance. So you still get that top velocity because they get that five to seven yards of acceleration, but it's a quicker transition. So they're going to go gotcha. from more of that starting angle to that top speed as they progress from there. I love that. Yeah. It's funny because I think sometimes too, we get in the sports world and we assume sports are track. And, and here's what I mean by that. When you hear, Oh, well, Usain Bolt, he accelerates out to 60 meters. Yeah, yeah, I need to tell you, like, none of our athletes are Usain Bolt. Nobody's accelerating. Like, most guys are at are at, at max V 10, 15 yards into a run, you know? For so, sure. That's awesome. And that just, yeah, exactly. And that just concludes our point in terms of you can get to max velocity pretty quickly in smaller spaces. So Yeah, no, that's awesome, man. So something else that you mentioned that I'd love to hear more about is the role of deceleration training. Because I know you've got a wide variety of... Uh, people coming through your space from, you know, young kids that trying to make the team to high level NBA guys. So how do you fit deceleration training into your programs? Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, I mean, deceleration and breaking forces, I think are overlooked. I think just like before I explain it, a very simple drill, if you're listening is stand up out of your chair, or your seat right now. I want you to stand straight 
And I want you to just get up on your tippy toes and fall forward. I want you to strike the ground with either your right or left leg. And then tell me what you experience when that happens. A lot of times you might fall over. You might get a hamstring cramp if you strike with the heel first. But that's a very, very rudimentary example of deceleration. Because in speed, you reach six to seven times your body weight and forces by as little as 12 to 15 yards. So if you're just a, if you're a coach and you warm kids up and you do your, your corrective work at the beginning, your breathing work, what have you, and then you're like, hey, guys, let's go. You're going to sprint, all right, 15 yards. Now come back to the line. Now you're going to sprint 20 yards. You're skipping steps in development. So I think from a neurological standpoint, most athletes don't even have the neurological ability or coordination to quote unquote stop on a dime. And that example I use, I think, is something as a test that we use to just say like, hey, look, stand up, fall forward. You're working with a 6'8 athlete who weighs 240 pounds. You'll be shocked that even though they can, they have high level genetics, they can't even stop themselves on that level. And so we work around there. But what that is, is that's ground contact time. You know, and a lot of coaches, Cam Joss and I've talked about this a lot, a great speed deceleration and change of direction program revolve around ground contact time. Hmm. In earlier phases of the sprint, it's longer ground contact times. In cutting, it's longer ground contact times. And in non-counter movement jumps, it's non-ground contact time. Because if I look at what happens kinematically in one's body while they're sprinting, they're like this with fuller ranges of motion. And then they begin to get upper, right? More upright. Yep. And now their turnover is higher, less ground contact time. Whereas earlier, it's more ground contact time, greater ranges of motion, but more force. Yep. The same thing works with deceleration. If you were to practice cutting in small spaces or a light tennis drill in small spaces, that's all longer ground contact time, more force as they're trying to change direction. So what we do is as your ground contact time, decreases so do all the other subsequent exercises your decelerations so forth and so on so that's a great barometer to to i guess gauge all of your other programs which we'll talk about in a little bit yeah no i love that i should say i'm sure yeah no, no no i love that and i think that's something that you know when you look at the best basketball players like i love I don't always love Instagram, but I love the NBA Instagram feed, just watching some of these guys and seeing in slow motion how much force they're putting into the ground. Like just over the last couple of days, you see Luka Doncic, you see Kyrie, you see KD and the positions that they hit, the amount of breaking force they have to stop their momentum and create a step back or to change direction. Like that's a game changer, right? And people we talked about linear speed and the power of that, but breaking speed and being able to change direction, that's a huge piece of the puzzle as well. Absolutely. That's why we have a whole, you know, a day dedicated to it. And I think it just definitely cannot go overlooked. Yeah. So one thing that I know you talk a lot about that I, I like about your programs is this idea of understanding asymmetries in the body and how they impact movement and training. So I'd sure. love to know kind of your thoughts on how you adjust for asymmetries in movement and how might that look in one of your training programs? Absolutely. So, I mean, a lot of the thought process is, is rooted in PRI and obviously your partner, Bill, but I don't like to take it too far because I think sometimes you can go down a rabbit hole and you, sure. you don't even have a lot of individuals don't experience enough stress for lack of better words to truly display those levels of compensation. Right. 
So, but when I look at asymmetry, I think every human has an asymmetrical pelvis. I think every single individual has an asymmetrical brain, organs. And so that plays a little bit of role in weight distribution in a sport that requires so much, like we just mentioned, deceleration and what and whatnot. Yeah. So one of the biggest things, and this is this is the big takeaway from this, I think, that we saw is we record every sprint from terms of timing and on video. And what we saw was that athletes who had an asymmetrical pelvis by an assessment that we brought them through that's super simple actually had less, or I should say slower five and 10 yard split times than athletes who did not. Hmm. And this was, here's an example. Let's say your pelvis, you have the classic PRI just to make sure we're, we're okay with terminology. You had a classic left AIC. Yep. Your right side was a little bit more internally rotated. Well, in the sprint, when we set up, we do a lot of two point sprints. We don't do official three and four points because we deal with basketball players. Right. But when they take off, we know that you need equal weight distribution off the first, both legs. But athletes who showed this asymmetry, their trajectory would change if I was looking at them from behind. So while they would sprint, they experience more force on that right side because they're better at loading, while the left side is better at propulsion. Right. But what happened is, is they would almost push off and drift towards this left side and the left foot wasn't quick enough to come back in and accept that weight. So their sprint would almost curve left and then back hmm. to center. Interesting. And so by correcting that pattern, we were able to improve their time. But this mattered all the way when we did our weighted sprints, when we did our accelerations and then even our max velocity. So I believe that we mitigated some potential injury there by addressing a lot of those issues. And then secondly, something that, you know, is, is interesting is the brain is asymmetrical, how you process information, right? Right. Right. In the left hemisphere of the brain, one's more creative, one's more analytical, but this manifests itself in athletes when you watch them do their skill work, but also their training, ask an athlete, which side they like to do their step back to righties like to go right, left, lefties like to go left, right. That's where they feel comfortable when they sprint. Righties like to go right foot forward, left foot back, and lefties like to go left foot forward and right foot back. It's interesting. And just ask them, hey, go up to the line. We're going to get into a two-point sprint. See which they, which they prefer, and then ask them if they're a right-handed or left-handed shooter. But if you always prefer that left foot forward and you always prefer, pre prefer that right foot forward, what ends up happening is, is you get so comfortable on that side that you actually develop more strength on one of your legs when you – shoot out in the sprint. So what we do in all of our warmups is we just switch it. Mm. So we try to create new reference points in the brain. And so we'll have them do the opposite. And it feels a little bit uncomfortable, but what we're really doing is, is we're just rewiring the brain like we talked about during the start of their sprint. And that has also helped improve sprint times over that 52 week period that we, that we set. Yeah. It, you know, and it sounds so basic, right? Like, oh, just have them start on the other side. But this is a huge piece of the puzzle. Like with the guys that I work with, we often have this discussion of, hey, everybody's asymmetrical. Most basketball players know it more so than a lot of sporting athletes, right? Sure. Um, but I always talk to them in terms of, number one, I'm not trying to make you symmetrical. My goal is to help you better manage your asymmetry. And then I always try and give them context to it too, right? So like if I've got that typical left foot jumper, it's like, hey, dude, I know you can go up and, and whatever, jump 40 inches off the left. What can you do off your right? And a lot of times they're like, mm -hmm. oh, I can barely dunk off my right. Or, oh, I'd never, you know, I'd never try and finish off too. So things that I'll try and relay back to them is, hey, look, 
Like, I love that you're a left foot finisher. Let's continue to, to stabilize that and make sure that that's there. But what else can we add to the bag? Can we give you a right foot takeoff? Can we get you more comfortable jumping off too? And, and so if you can give them that context of, hey, this is how it's going to make you a better basketball player as well. I think then you can really get a lot of buy-in from your guys. Absolutely. And I think it's just, it's low hanging fruit. Yep. I think what's happening is I saw this hilarious meme where it was like how they used to train in like the nineties and the eighties. And it was like guys lifting stones and like bench pressing yeah. <laughs> and then it said how guys are training now. And they like had a balloon in their mouth and they were doing like <laughs> bridges and like banded hydrants. Right. And it's like, cause you're always trying to make it more complicated than it is. So just yep. take the low hanging fruit, you know, nail out those big rocks. And I think that solves a lot of issues that, Again, these kids just don't have any true training. So that is going to move the needle pretty far for them. Yeah, for sure. So strength training is kind of a big deal when it comes to speed development, and rightfully so. But we also know that strength, at least now, we know it's not the be-all, end-all that it once was. So I'd love to hear what role strength training plays in your speed development program these days. For sure. Yeah, for sure. So uh, part of this study that we did, we showed that athletes who improved their strength from 0.25 to 1.5 improve their speed and performance, meaning their vertical jump and all of that significantly by up to like 10, 12%. But what was interesting is athletes who tried to improve their lower body strength from 1.75 to two times their body weight strength had no additional gains in performance. Hmm. And this is when strength was prioritized. That's not going to always be the be all end all, but I think we know that getting a basketball player to deadlift five, 600 pounds is not going to provide any additional benefits. And even I would argue other sports too, even if you football, baseball, what have you, you need to start refocusing your efforts. So strength plays an important role because again, I think that a lot of athletes don't have exposure to good strength training. Yep. You know, I've seen, it's so funny. I know you've seen this. You might see this really big jacked NBA guy. He comes in and he he's the man. He can't even dumbbell press 40-pound dumbbells. Yep. And you're like, but you're this XY guy, and I just saw you on ESPN last night dunking all over these players. So what's the low-hanging fruit is improving strength, and we just created a metric, a barometer for where usually the taper off is, if you yep. know. What, what uh, lift were you measuring? There? Yeah, so this was a single leg strength test. So this could okay. be in proportion to their body weight. So oh, let's okay. say you were doing a holding dumbbells and they weighed 150 pounds. Well, they would have to have 150 pounds of total weight each hand. I gotcha. I gotcha. I was just interested because I actually did a show. Uh, people would have heard it last week. I just interviewed Zach earlier today. Uh, but Zach DeCamp from TCU and he was talking about, you know, with his front squat with his baseball players, you know, generally between 1.4 and 1.7 times body weight. Now, granted, you can't can, can't compare directly baseball and and basketball, but just that that same mindset of look, there's kind of this sweet spot that they found is best, and then if you go above that, you're probably going to get some diminishing returns. You're not going to see the same return on your investment as you would early on in your program. For sure, and sometimes too, you know, like I think. One thing that is really important to note is you can't treat them like snowflakes, if you will. We sometimes let them go. Like if they want to go on a lift, we've had guys in here who've rack pulled 500 pounds. We're talking about basketball players, NBA basketball players, but it's above the thigh. It's a quarter range of motion. It's a little bit safer, but you'd be shocked that like these guys have a lot more in them. So take the lowest hanging fruit, keep milking it, and then 
obviously as you progress. That's the metric that we've seen as we use as a blanket statement across for all athletes. But sometimes I think you got to take the training wheels off and you just got to let them let them go a little bit. I love it. I love it. And one other point I always want to make clear too is don't confuse chasing max strength with using the weight room to chase like tissue adaptations. For sure. Right? Like there's plenty of guys and I know you've seen them as well that like, okay, we've kind of topped out the strength training bucket, but that doesn't mean they don't strength train anymore. We just shift the the focus of the program and it's more about keeping them healthy and maybe maintaining those force outputs versus continuing to try and drive them up. 100%. And the body doesn't recognize what the actual external load is. Yep. So you could do a front, I'm just making something up. You could do a front squat, then you could do a pause front squat, an eccentric front squat, a front squat with chains. That right there is almost half a year progression. Right. If you follow it consistently without having to truly chase that new higher, you know, top number, if you will. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. One, one more question here. How much does your speed training differ between your developmental and your high level clients? For sure. I think that, you know, like I said before, we have a lot of data. We're very fortunate here. We collect a lot of data. We have a lot of research, but I think we simplified it that anybody can kind of use the principles that we found that have worked uh, block after training block. So in earlier stages of development, it's all about rewiring the nervous system, the neuromuscular system, and building the engine for future gains to be made, if you will. So I care about building that technical capacity. I care about rewiring the brain in terms of, you'd even be shocked. Most basketball players can't even do a normal A skip with opposite arm, opposite leg. Yeah. And so just spending a lot of time during the posture and prep work you're going to clean up a lot of lot of potential injury that they might experience as they get faster, as they get stronger. So that's in earlier stages, whether you're working with a youth athlete and then building the engine, as we, as we mentioned before, I think getting stronger earlier is very important. You need a base, you need a foundation from a tissue standpoint, from a tendon standpoint, from a nervous system standpoint, and then you kind of build from there. With higher level individuals, you know, they're athletes. These guys obviously have freaky genetics. They have big engines, peak forces, high PMX, PMAX, and really, really fast firing nervous systems. So for them, it's funny, you know, I, I actually, I wrote an article about this, but we treat youth athletes like pros and pros like youth athletes in the <laughs> sense of where their development lies, because these pro athletes, they already have the physical qualities that you're looking to attain if you're a youth athlete. Yep. So you need to go back to basics, more technical work, more basic principles, all of those things to help them better express their genetic ability. Yeah. Whereas, like we said before, with the youth athletes, technically they'll catch on kind of quickly, but they don't have the power, the speed and the strength that these other guys have. So I think it's important to just, again, know where the athlete is and, and meet them where they are. No, that's awesome. I feel like I'd be remiss here if I didn't ask, because you've talked a lot about like just tools and testing, like what kind of tools are you using there? Because I mean, I'm not like a hardcore tech guy, but like I enjoy some tech too. So what are you using to try and like gather numbers and gather your data? Yeah, for sure. So we use a couple of things. And initially, like every young coach, when we first started, you're like, all right, we need to collect as much as possible. You make that mistake. Right. But over the years, you begin to really fine tune it in what you're actually looking for. And I always say to coaches, they want to just get this stuff just for the sake of having it. But it's like, no, what exactly are you looking for and why do you need it? Yep. So we use two things. We use Fusion Sport, which is the official technology of the NBA Combine. Um, 
so we do that. So we have some of that. And when we, I don't need to break down in terms of every little thing that we look at, but we just look at a lot of force velocity profiling. We look at split times and we have constants in our programming. So if you're listening to this, always have constants, meaning we use the 10 and 15 yard year round, no matter what phase of the sprint we're in, what phase of training we're in, because it's a barometer of improvement. If I can look back and be like, holy cow, you guys improved your speed by 20% over the last 13 weeks. You would only know that if you have a constant as opposed right. to always changing the test. It's like in school, studying for a history test, you study, you study, you get there, and then you're taking like a geology test. It's just <laughs> trying to switch it up too much. The second one that we use is actually an in-body. Oh, okay. So in-body, yeah, it just gives us a lot of data to help create a roster list in the fusion sport, but... As everyone knows, there is a huge correlation between improving your body composition and your performance. And so by just monitoring these two things, we know if they're trending in the right direction that uh, we're onto something. No, that's cool. And it, it actually reminds me of uh, a show I did a while back with a guy named Jimmy Stitz. And Jimmy works with USA Volleyball. And he was talking about like, look, power to weight ratio. Granted, that's a very vertical game. Yeah, uh, you know, you don't hear a lot of people talk about body weight or body mass as much in our sports, but that's really interesting that you guys are tracking that religiously. I can see the benefit of that for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think um, it's fun too because you have like all the guys who think they have the highest vertical, but like the guy's six six, the other guy's six one, and he's like, "But I jump higher than you on the vertex." It's like, no, when we actually put you on the real jump mat force plate, he jumps about eight inches higher than you. <laughs> yeah, I had a guy that I worked with years ago, probably the only legit forty inch jumper I've ever had. But yeah, he was about my height, five eleven, and touching about eleven four. So yeah. 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 He, there, there's a lot of film on him dunking all over dudes that didn't know he had that in the tank. So, all right, big question time. If you could alter the space time continuum and give young Adam Minner one piece of advice, what would it be? That's heavy. Uh, <laughs> I would say be patient. I think yep. everyone has a different timeline in their career. Social media definitely does not help. No. You know, you're looking all the time and you're looking at all these guys. You're like, I wish I could be him. I wish I could do X, Y, and Z. But you know, if you're doing the right things, continuing to build your craft, being resourceful, connecting with others, over time, I truly believe you'll reap what you sow. It's easier said than done, of course. But I think that if you do that over time and you're doing the right things, when you meet a little bit of luck, you'll be fine. I love it. And I always tell people, recognize what social media is, right? You know, especially if you find yourself not feeling good about yourself when you're looking at it you're looking at everybody else's highlight reel, right? Exactly. It's like watching SportsCenter 24-7 and thinking Steph Curry never misses a shot, right. right? Like it doesn't work like that. Keep your head down, stay focused. Like like you said, everybody's got kind of their own timeline. So don't feel rushed or feel like you have to be on somebody else's. For sure, 100%. All right, man. Last but not least, lightning round. Four fairly short questions. Your answer can be as long or short as you like. Cool? Let's get it. All right, man. Number one, what's your career highlight so far as a coach? My career highlight. So this summer is kind of unique. This summer, we are going to be hosting uh, the NBA 2021 pre-draft training camp. Oh, nice. So we're going to do that. We're going to be doing that in New York City with a few other skilled coaches. Uh, we were recommended by numerous well-known coaches in the industry. So I think that was really cool. And it's going to be a fun experience. So that, That's exciting, man. That's going to yeah, be very be cool. Fun. Love it. Okay. Number two, 
and this answer may change after you do that training camp, but up to date, uh, what's the freakiest athletic feat you've seen in real life? For sure. Uh, so there's a guy who's training in the gym. I'm going to, I'm going to name him right now. His name is Brandon Randolph. Okay. He's in Arizona. He was on the number one team in Arizona with DeAndre Eaton. Yeah. And now he played for the Milwaukee Bucks and now their G League team. And he's going to play in summer league this year and hopefully regain a, a roster spot. But a lot of players in the NBA, I've been fortunate to work with some, some that I can't name, but they think they're very athletic. They are very gifted. They have other qualities that make them there. Yep. But this guy is a straight up stud on, on the fusion sport and all the tech that we have. He has a legitimate 46 inch vertical. Oh my gosh. He has the highest peak force that we've ever seen in a sprint, meaning he can run his body weight on a sled through 10 yards. Or no, I'm sorry. He can run 75% of his body weight on a sled through 10 yards. And the time only differs about 8% from his unweighted time. Wow. So like just <laughs> his ability to get going and his piston engine like is yeah. just unbelievable. That's amazing, man. Yeah. It's sometimes you take it for granted and then you see oh, stuff yeah. like that and you're like, whoa, dude, you're next level, man. For you're sure. Next level. Okay. Number three, I'm really interested in this one. What's the biggest mistake you've ever made as a coach and how did you learn from it? Yeah. Easy. Trying to prove, you know, everything. I think when you're young, you go, there's this uh, life cycle. I think Brett Bartholomew talks about it a little bit, but I don't think you really realize it until you start to experience, you know, significant success, I'll call it, where there's a little bit more on the line. You have contracts, you're dealing with other coaches, you're dealing with agents, maybe you're dealing with other businesses. But at the beginning, you're just trying to think you know everything, you're showing everything, but you have no context. And then as you begin to really get in the trenches, 30, 40, 50 hour work weeks for years, you start to go like, wow, I I know nothing. Everything that I (laughs) thought I just reading and and I'm doing, I have no idea. And then it starts to come full circle. You're like, simplify everything because you're like, okay, over the last 10 years, these five things have worked. These thousand other things have not. And you just double down on them. And you just, I think that's where back to the top, the psychology component of creating an awesome atmosphere, a great culture where the training doesn't really differ but the environment and the people you work with do. So I would say trying to prove everything right at the beginning is just take it with time and be careful with your words. Hey, I found this or this has seemed to work as opposed to, you know, speaking in absolutes. Absolutely. And I think that's something we all learn with time, right? Because you want to, you want to prove your worth, right? Like that's normal. I know I wanted to do that as well, but at the same time you do it long enough and you're like, Oh, wow. Like a lot of the stuff that I thought I knew back then, I was not correct about. <laughs> it humbles you. This game humbles you. That's for sure. Sometimes I look back and I'm like, I'm just lucky some of those kids I worked with didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely, man. Okay. Last but not least, number four, what's next for Adam Minner? What are you working on? What are you excited about? Anything? For sure. Uh, this summer is going to be really, really cool. At here, we're hosting a really high-level pro collegiate program. So we're going to have 50 to 60 kids of all sports. So yes, basketball, but all yeah. sports. And it's going to be a lot of fun. The NBA draft training, like we mentioned too. And then our company, Business of Strength, we're releasing a really inexpensive educational platform for young strength coaches uh, that we're very excited about. And we've been working really, really hard on it. So those are the three things that you know I know my team and myself are really proud of, and they've done an awesome job. So 
That's awesome, man. Well, Adam, it's really been awesome catching up with you today. Next time you're in beautiful Carmel, Indiana, you better come by the gym or I'm going to be upset. I'm going to be upset. But where can my listeners find out more about you and all the great work you're doing? For sure. So just my Instagram is Adam Menner. I'm pretty active there. And then if you want, you can go to www.businessofstrength.com. And there you'll find a lot of the information, some of the free resources that we offer, articles and what have you. I love it, man. Well, Adam, again, it was really great to catch up with you today. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's show with Adam. Really hope you enjoyed it. As you know, two things I'm incredibly passionate talking about are number one, speed and number two, basketball. So really enjoyed catching up with Adam, learning a little bit more about his system, his philosophy and how he trains his basketball players. So if you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor, pass this along to a fellow trainer, a fellow coach, maybe another basketball player that you think could benefit from learning more about how we train speed and how you can get the absolute most out of your basketball game by better understanding the elements of speed training. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care.